Um, the title for this morning's uh, message is When Opposites Attract Mercy and Truth. Um, this is going to be kind of a long, longer introduction. Uh, usually, or there are times where I try to make the introduction a bit more interesting, but uh, this introduction is really a, um, I guess, a biblical background of mercy and truth. And I tried putting a different um, introduction there, but I just I can't really avoid this this um, string of Bible text. So apologies, lots of Bible text today, um, but we'll get right into it. Um, in the Bible, there's this promise of God's presence throughout Scripture. And I think something that's embedded in the heart of humanity is this desire to really want to connect with the supernatural, to have some sense of security, to have some sense of direction, to have some sense of guidance. And so, in the Bible, there are moments where God closely aligns himself with his people to give them the experience of that desire. And in the Old Testament, we're given the example of the sanctuary. And in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, God talks to Moses and, okay, so it's this one? No, I did it again. This one. Okay. So God speaks to Moses and he tells Moses uh, to build him a sanctuary And the reason why God wants Moses to build him a sanctuary is so that God himself can dwell with his people or be with his people. There's another example in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, where God's presence or his glory fills the temple. And uh, the text says, Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, the word dwell in Hebrew is Shekinah, which is described as the physical, supernatural presence of God. Oftentimes, the word glory is um, associated with this concept. Okay. Uh, It's associated with this concept. So throughout the Old Testament, there are different times where God's glory fills the temple. Here's one more example, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 3. Um, And this is the story of Solomon when he finishes building um, a permanent structure for the tabernacle or for the sanctuary. And the text says, When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord, because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down, and the glory of the Lord, oh, excuse me, and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, and his mercy endures forever." So there's kind of this sentiment or this idea that as long as God's presence is here, everything is good. There's a sense of certainty, of confidence. Now, as time passed by, Israel kind of falls away from God, and there are different moments where God communicates, hey, if you continue on this journey, if you continue on this path, the temple is going to be destroyed. And and what happens in history is that Israel tends to replace their relationship with the God, with the existence of the structure of the temple. And so, while the temple initially was created to give Israel security, it 
kind of becomes an idol, and Israel um, relies on the physical presence of the temple rather than cultivating a relationship with God. And so, in Ezekiel, what, or excuse me, in Ezekiel, Ezekiel's time, he sees the actual glory of God depart from the temple. Here's a progression of passages. So, starting in Ezekiel chapter 9, you see this progression of the glory of God moving away from the sanctuary or the temple. So, in verse 3, the glory of the of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. And so, um, there are different compartments of the sanctuary, but in the very most inner part of the temple or the sanctuary, we see this picture of God's presence stepping out of that compartment to the threshold or the, the I guess, the entryway of the temple. If we keep reading in verse 10, what we see is that the glory of the Lord goes from the threshold of the temple and, uh, and, and it exits uh, exits out to the courtyard. Uh, and so once again, we're seeing this outward movement. If we move to Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 22 to 23, um, we see the glory of God exiting the temple grounds completely and going to the outskirts of the city and resting on the mountain um, on the eastern side of the city. And so once again, Ezekiel as a prophet witnesses the physical presence of God Exiting the, te- exiting the sanctuary, the temple, and the tabernacle. And so, you can imagine what this would have felt like for Ezekiel, and especially as he communicates this to the Israelites, he's saying, everyone, the presence of God is gone. And what inevitably happens is um, the physical structure of the temple is then destroyed as well um, due to invaders. So, this happens multiple times where the temple is destroyed, Israel rebuilds the temple, there's this assurance of God's presence, and then God once again um, has to distance himself from his people, and the temple is destroyed again. Well, in Haggai, one of the minor prophets, um, as the temple is destroyed, there's this promise that's given to Israel. Um, And the text says, or the promise reads, For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, It is a little while I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all the nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. So there's this incredible promise that's given to uh, God's people that God's glory would return, but in a more significant manner uh, in a future temple that's promised. And so from the perspective of Israel, they're constantly looking and waiting for this greater glory that would uh, that would um, reside with uh, with Israel once again. And and when you think about this promise, it really puts into context a lot of the conflict that's happening in the Mi- Middle East right now. Uh, when you think about uh, the battles uh, that are happening between the Israelites, uh, the Palestinians, um, there, there's a number of groups that are kind of battling it out in that area. A lot of the fight, especially for 
um, the Israel or for those who are, who um, are part of the Israelite nation, it, it it centers around this future promise of God's glory residing in 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 Jerusalem and in that place. Well, in Psalm eighty five. In Psalm 85, verse 5, uh, excuse me, in Psalm 85, verses 8 to 13, there's this promise that's reiterated, but the wording is slightly different. And I'm going to suggest today that the promise of the fulfillment of God's presence and this text are connected, and I'll show a few verses that support that. So Psalm 85, verses 8 to 13, it says, Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other, faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him, and will make his footsteps our pathway." There's this promise sort of hidden in the passage. Uh, the text says that when mercy and truth meet, God's glory dwells in the land. And there's this promise of God's presence abiding in the places where this kind of righteousness is embraced. And so, once again, we're seeing that concept of glory and dwell, uh, and uh, God's glory dwelling with his people. But this time, instead of residing in a building, it's connected to this idea of mercy and truth. So in Exodus chapter 34, God describes himself or defines himself as mercy and truth. Um, and it's almost as if these two concepts are personified in, in God. And so there's this deep meaning in the Old Testament when it comes to this idea of mercy and truth and the glory of God dwelling with with his people. Now mercy and truth also has another meaning. In Psalm chapter 25 verses 10 the psalmist says, "The Lord leads with mercy and truth for all who keep his covenant and obey his demands." So here, mercy and truth are something that God does. Uh, it means to have the constant and perpetual favor of God. Uh, if you look at Psalm 40 verse 11, it says, do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. So what we're seeing here is that there, there's this portfolio of meaning that's attached to this idea of mercy and truth. Um, on one hand, it's connected to God's presence. And on the other hand, it's connected to God's favor. So you have this 400-year gap between the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And for 400 years, there's no uh, sign of the physical presence of God. And so there's kind of this um, wondering amongst the Hebrew nation, God, when are you going to fulfill that promise that your physical presence is going to be felt again? So when we get to the days of Jesus, when he steps onto the scene and he's trying to establish the kingdom of God, the author of the Gospel of John introduces Jesus in a very specific way. So in John chapter 1, verse 14, the author John writes, 
and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So once again, here's that imagery of the phrase, or excuse me, here's that phrase, dwelt among us. And, and the imagery here is, um, in, in the original language, dwelt among us is that of pitching a tent. So this, t- this text connects all the meaning of the Old Testament sanctuary and it attaches it to Jesus. So as Jesus steps on the scene, really his identity is the glory of God. So in other words, all the hopes and dreams of what it means for God's presence to be with his people are found in the word, God, the light of humanity, Jesus Christ. So Jesus fulfills the promise of God's glory returning to his people. And if you look at uh, verse 17, notice here, John kind of contrasts the law that's given through Moses with grace and truth, which comes to Jesus Christ. And, and as he's introducing Jesus as the fulfillment of God's presence, um, he's, he's, he's contrasting the shortcoming of the law and highlighting the importance of Jesus. Uh, Warren Worsby uh, writes, The law could reveal sin, but it could never remove sin. So here, John is trying to present Jesus as someone who's here to bring healing to humanity. And he comes to restore humanity through mercy and truth. Now, if you think about these two ideas, mercy and truth, these two don't seem to go together. Um, So just by the way, that was the introduction. (laughs) Um, So at first glance, mercy and truth don't seem to go together. If you embrace truth then how can you give mercy, especially when someone commits an offense? Uh, Logically, truth compels us to create accountability. And the opposite also seems to make logical sense. If you embrace mercy, it requires you to turn a blind eye to truth. Gary Burge says that mercy without truth is deceitful. And what he's doing is he's really pointing out that even though logically these two ideas seem to be opposed, they really are dependent on each other. They are connected to each other. Um, A while ago, I was sharing about uh, the importance of loving God and loving our neighbors and how in Scripture there are different paradoxical pairings. There are times where God connects two logically contrasting ideas and he connects the two of them showing how in the midst of the tension between those two opposing contrasting ideas is the presence of God. And so Gary Burge here just, he, he, um, yeah, words it in a really good way where he says, mercy without truth is deceitful. Burge's point is, if you excuse evil, how is it that grace, uh, how is grace and mercy then good? especially for the, uh, from the perspective of the victim. There's an ongoing case. Um, there's an ongoing case between the Sackler family and literally thousands of Americans. Uh, the Sackler family is one of America's wealthiest families, um, and, and, the Sack, uh, and the Sackler family make up the board, uh, certain members of the Sackler family make up the board of directors of Purdue Pharma, uh, which is a pharmaceutical company 
um, that created OxyContin, an opioid that is considered to be one of the main causes behind um, the opioid crisis in America. So Purdue Pharma famously and fraudulently marketed OxyContin as an opioid that was less addictive than the other opioids that were on the market. Um, What ended up happening is that doctors took OxyContin then and prescribed it um, as pain medication starting in the 90s. This has led to a widespread usage of OxyContin throughout the U.S., which has contributed to over 840,000 deaths um, that, uh, excuse me, 840,000 deaths by opioid overdose, uh, overdosage since 1999. Well, in September of, of last year, Purdue Pharma was dissolved. Uh, there was a bankruptcy settlement, uh, that required the Sacklers to pay $4.5 billion to settle opioid, uh, claims. Now, the thing is, the Sacklers made over $10 billion from uh, OxyContin, and the court ruling largely absolved and protected the Sackler family um, of opioid-related liability. So while Purdue Pharma, the company that is owned by the Sackler family, has filed for bankruptcy, the Sackler family themselves have not filed for bankruptcy, and they're still billionaires. I mean, if, if you have... For, uh, if you have $10 billion and you lose $5 billion, while that's almost half of what you own, it's $5 billion. I mean, if you had $1 billion, that, that is just an absurd amount of, of money. So you can imagine there are a lot of people that were really upset about this ruling. Um, the story went viral because the justice system wrongfully pardoned and protected this wealthy, influential family that had done something that was evil. So when mercy is handed out without considering truth, then that mercy itself becomes fraudulent. Well, in December of uh, 2021, so just a few months later, a U.S. federal judge uh, by the name of Colleen McMahon overturned and rejected Purdue Pharma settlement with a bankruptcy court. She found that federal law does not give bankruptcy release for people who are not declaring bankruptcy themselves. And so people were up in arms about, well, not up in arms, I guess that means people were upset, but people were really happy about this judge overturning the bankruptcy settlement from uh, the, the few months that had taken, uh, the court case that had taken place a few months before that. So since then, Purdue Pharma has released a statement saying it would appeal the ruling, and so the case continues on. We'll see what happens. But this highlights the point that mercy without truth is deceitful. Conversely, truth without grace is also unjust. Did you know that if you have multiple speeding infringements, In a short period of time in Victoria, you can request a pardon uh, without getting penalized for multiple offenses. Here are the guidelines from the Victorian Police website. Victoria Police has guidelines regarding the enforcement of multiple speed camera infringements issued to drivers detected at low speeds with certain freeway highway zones. These guidelines are being adopted to ensure that drivers are being afforded the opportunity to positively positively alter their driver behavior without being penalized by multiple infringements. 
for the purpose of these guidelines, a low-speed infringement, or LSI, is a speed of less than 10 kilometers an hour above the posted speed limit. The discretion to be applied to multiple low-speed infringements relates to those received over a period of several days uh, prior to the driver becoming aware of the first issued infringement. So, in essence... Um, you may be eligible to have multiple infringements that come within the, uh, the guidelines to be withdrawn. I don't know if that sentence made sense, but I think you know what I'm talking about. So I know of a guy who received like three speeding tickets in a short period of time. Um, apparently, he wrote a letter to the traffic uh, camera office, and they only penalize a person for one ticket. And, and my point is that even the police department recognizes that truth needs to be fair. Even if my friend was caught speeding multiple times, it was fair to pardon him um, or her. (laughs) It was fair to pardon that individual uh, for most of the penalty. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 6 says that love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. And and in this passage, Paul's giving a discourse on love. But notice for Paul, the antithesis of iniquity is truth. So truth is not only about what is accurate or right. There's a redemptive, merciful quality to truth. So in context, this text does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. The very next text says, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. See, we cannot separate truth from mercy. The the reality is that nobody could obtain truth or redemption without mercy. So mercy and truth need to go hand in hand. I want to spend a moment talking about truth first and then mercy. In the Old Testament, truth, uh, the word truth, in, in the original language is emmet. And it's defined as faithful, reliable, divine instruction, ethical or religious knowledge, or doctrine. Now, the challenge of truth here is that the challenge of truth here is that when we claim the Bible and God as true, uh, there are things that are difficult to prove. Um, All the things that we believe in as Christians require faith, um, which is subjective. So a large part of having um, faith is making a decision. Like there is a degree of subjectivity uh, connected to experiencing faith or to having faith. It, It isn't always based on facts, evidence, or objective truth. Oftentimes, um, the things that we believe are not logical. So then how do we convince others who don't hold the same worldviews as ourselves to accept our truth? Uh, I guess more importantly, how do we know when we've arrived at truth? Some things are difficult to understand and they're difficult to explain. And even some teachings that we hold as Seventh-day Adventist Christians are just difficult. So then how do we arrive at truth? As I showed in the definitions, truth can be religious knowledge or doctrine. But in the Bible, it's also described as a journey. 
I've had a number of chats with my friend Celia, um, and those conversations have really helped me in my own thinking in regards to uh, arriving at truth. In Genesis chapter 24, verse 48, Abraham's servant is trying to find a wife for Abraham's son. As he meets the parents of a potential partner, he retells his story showing how God led him. And he says, And I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord, and blessed the Lord, uh, blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham, who had led me in the way of truth. So while God's truth can be teachings and principles, it can also be a journey, an experience with God. See, God led Abraham's servant on a journey of truth that led him to that point. The psalmist describes a, a similar experience in Psalm chapter 43, verse 3. He writes, O send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. Oftentimes, the journey of truth, it's a challenging one. Uh, the call to obedience will uh, require us to make a stand for something. Sometimes it will call, uh, call us to deny ourselves an opportunity, uh, maybe deny ourselves a comfort or a pleasure. But in the end, that journey promises to lead us to an encounter with God. I've had a handful of these moments, and when the journey of truth led me to an, uh, excuse me, uh, that journey of truth led me to an encounter and ultimately a relationship with God. There are many who stand for objective truth, but choose not to live out the journey of truth. A notable figure is Ravi Zacharias. Uh, this man was one of the most influential Christian apologists over the past 50 years. He passed away in 2020, but soon after his death, there were different allegations that came up of misconduct that came to the surface. After investigation, it came out that Zacharias had owned different massage parlors and had abused his employees, manipulating them. On multiple occasions, he diverted ministry funds to financially support the women that he had been with. In John chapter 16, verse 3, there's a promise that's given. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you the things to come. When we prioritize the journey of truth, that response to God's promptings, that response to God's word to simply trust, obey, and follow him, God promises to guide us into all truth. Let us not just embrace objective truth, but the journey of truth. I want to end by talking about mercy. In the Old Testament, okay, there's some slides that didn't make it. In the Old Testament, there's, uh, there's the word for mercy is hesed. And it's defined as mercy, kindness, goodness, beauty, and favor. And because the word hesed has these layers of meaning to it, uh, modern translators often translate the word hesed to unfailing love. And depending on the context, any of these words can be used. But most of the time, the word hesed is translated as mercy, and oftentimes it's translated as kindness. 
For example, in Psalm 117, verse 2, it says, For his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. I've often heard God's mercy presented in an unkind way. It's presented as if we should feel undeserving and feel a deep sense of sorrow in order to receive forgiveness. It's as if God is saying, you're a sinner, but I forgive you, but remember that you're a sinner. The experience leaves the penitent seeker with a head knowledge of forgiveness, but a lingering sense of insecurity. I used to try and keep my mistakes at the forefront of my mind because I thought if I'm sorry and I feel bad enough, I'll change. Because the focus of my interaction with God was on my shortcoming, um, the fixation of failure inevitably overshadowed God's mercy. There was no sense of release, no sense of acceptance, no sense of confidence and I passed that sentence, and, and as I'm, as I've, as I'm starting to, I guess, as I've parented my kids over the last eight years, what I'm realizing is that I'm passing on that sentiment to my kids. That if you feel bad enough, you will change your fit, you will change your behavior. And I'm watching them do it to each other and to their friends as well. I really like Romans chapter two, verse four, that says, "Do you not know that the goodness of God?" Leads you, to repent, uh, leads you to repentance. The Bible often describes mercy as kind, and the focus is on what God has done as opposed to what we have done. When I, when I have these overwhelming feel, feelings of my own failure uh, or the failure of someone else, I find it helpful to think about God's goodness and His kindness. There are so many times where reciting a passage that reminds me of how good God is informs how I feel about myself and the present situation. And I know it sounds a little bit counterintuitive to say, okay, well, instead of thinking about my badness, I'm going to think about God's goodness. It almost seems like I'm trying to sweep away the problem under the rug or I'm trying to avoid the problem. But what actually happens is as I take my problem to God and I step into his presence as I am, there's this reassurance where God is saying, I know what you've done, but that doesn't change the way that I feel about you. And what often happens is as I fixate upon how God feels about me, it then gives me the strength to change and the willingness to try again. And so focusing on what God has done as opposed to fixating upon what I've done, I find is much more helpful. Um, oftentimes, I find it's more painful and difficult to accept grace and forgiveness. It's, it's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. Um, sometimes it's easier to not have hope. And if I lose hope, and I think, you know what, there's no point in trying anymore, then I just give up. And that's almost the easy road. It takes strength to come to God and say, yep, this is who I am. And it takes even more strength, strength to then accept the goodness and the forgiveness and grace of God to say, hey, I'm still here for you. I'm still rooting for you. And that's really what it means to embrace mercy or kind mercy. 
I think it's designed this way because when we focus on God's kindness, the response to God is then gratitude as opposed to shame and continual frustration. I think gratitude is so important because from gratitude comes humility. There's an awareness that I needed, I depended on, and received help. I find when I feel overwhelmed by my inability, the most helpful thing to do is to focus on God's goodness. The response, once again, to kindness is not weakness. Cultivating that mindset makes you great. NBA point guard Stephen Curry broke the all-time three-point record earlier this year. As of last night, he holds the record at 3,047. It took him 789 games to break the record. He passed Ray Allen, who previously broke the record, in 1,300 games exactly. So just just to do some quick maths for you, it took Steph Curry... 511 less games than the guy who previously held the record. So Reggie Miller, who is third on the all-time three-point record list, says nobody, nobody is ever going to pass Steph Curry on the list, ever. I'm so glad that seven years ago, I decided to buy this cereal box and uh, put that in frame anyway. So this cereal box, or this Wheaties box, is the 2015 MVP year for Steph Curry. Now, I remember hopping on the plane and my wife wanting to know, why am I bringing a cereal box on the plane? You know, maybe this will get signed. Actually, I brought two cereal boxes on the plane. Don't, don't judge me. I have two kids. They're, they're for the kids in the future. Anyway, you can go on YouTube right now and you can watch the moment. But what was most interesting to me was Steph's interaction with two of his teammates after the game in the hallway of the stadium. There's a video of him giving custom Rolexes to two of his teammates that, uh, that played with him throughout the years. And if you turn up the volume, you hear him saying, I want you to know how much you mean to me. I wouldn't be here without you, and I want to share the moment with you. As you watch Steph give his teammate Draymond Green the watch, he doesn't act proud. He's not like, I'm the king, you need to respect me. His head is bent low. And when he goes in to do the bro hug, uh, bro hug with Draymond, he buries his head in Draymond's chest because he's so thankful to his teammate that even though, even though he's the one that broke the record, he recognizes, I wouldn't be here without you. That attitude keeps great players around Steph, and, it, and in turn, it makes him great. God's mercy is designed to make us grateful, then it's designed to make us great. So as you embrace mercy and truth in your life, may you experience the fulfillment of the promise of the presence of God in your life. May you live out truth and embark or continue to embark on that journey uh, of obedience, and may you embrace kind mercy. And as you do that, it's my prayer that you feel God near you. May God bless you. Will you join me for prayer as we close? Father God, I just want to thank you for your word, for the promise that lies in your word. And as you have 
promised your presence to us. It's my prayer that that you would fulfill that promise. Father, there are so many of us who are going through difficult times. There's so many of us who are sitting in the midst of uncertainty, people who are unwell, people who have family members who have unwell, uh, people who have family members who are unwell. Father, there's so many of us that are calling out and asking for just a sense of reassurance that you are here with us. And so it's my prayer that as we embrace these two contrasting ideas, that as you have promised, that we would sense you near, that we would sense you guiding us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.